Hello, everybody. It's another episode of our wonderful podcast show. And today's guest is a friend of ours. She has certainly been on the show before because right now she's the most popular person in all of Denver with the answers about COVID. This is the head of our employment division, Colleen Calandra. Colleen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good. Yeah, good to have you back again. And I'll tell you, we could probably talk every day with all the changes that are going on. Can yeah. you share with some of the audience some of the hot topics that you're seeing right now in the COVID era as it re relates to, uh, to employment issues? Yeah, I mean, the employment issues are all over the place now because of COVID-19. Um, we've talked about unemployment in the past. Unemployment has now hit an all-time high in the United States. Where, uh, some articles are reporting that we are almost to the levels of the Great Depression um, in terms of unemployed um, people. I think that one of the articles I looked at said that unemployment was at 25% during the Great Depression and we are uh, approaching 20%. So we are not that far off from where um, you know, our ancestors were a long time ago. So hopefully that improves. I know that a lot of people are experiencing difficulties um, getting unemployment or getting their benefits because of the system. It's just so, so many people are applying. So there's that. Um, then we have, of course, the Family First Act, which um, was a response to um, the coronavirus and, and helping to keep people home if they were sick and or, you know, all of us, I'm a parent, <laughs> are uh, homeschooling our children. So that law also included um, if you had to stay home to care for a child or because your child did not have school or you did not have childcare. Um, so there's that law that um, employers are now grappling with and employees are trying to, um, trying to use to their benefit. And then of course, we've got our businesses out there um, who some of them have something called business interruption insurance. Um, and this is an insurance that would cover your losses during the pandemic and that is a huge hot topic right now as well because businesses are trying to open up bring employees back get back on track um, make these claims and then insurance companies are denying for various reasons so we have just there's just so many legal issues going on it's there's a lot, there's a lot there <laughs> that's right and look you you still look so fresh like you look <laughs> fresh as a daisy so let's let's well, break those three three down we, we got about 30 minutes or so and so to yeah. break those three down this first one in is the unemployment rate right now like you said we're approaching record highs that going towards 20 percent with 25 percent being the great depression i know that we've had a whole bunch of people be unable to get unemployment with respect to they can't get through they're having challenges getting stuff back websites crashing all this kind of stuff yeah. do you have any advice for the people still working hard uh, to get unemployment because they've been unemployed since this thing thing started or subsequently and they haven't been able to get through any advice for them yeah persistence <laughs> that's my advice um persistence because you again you know people are paying taxes they're entitled to this benefit the benefits are there to help you because you need you need it you need the help okay and so it is aggravating it is not an easy system to navigate but persistence continue to apply continue to submit submit information continue to call um, be persistent even though it is uh, it is not an efficient system it is not easy to navigate so I, I guess that's my biggest thing is persistence so just hang in there 
Um, uh -huh. Because actually the numbers that I gave you for unemployment um, shockingly are not indicative of all the unemployed individuals in the, in the United States. So they actually believe that there are more people who are just um, discouraged by the process or have been discouraged by the, you know, the, I guess the, the record numbers of people applying and kind of getting into the system and trying to get benefits. So people get discouraged, they quit, they don't get their benefits. So the numbers we're seeing aren't even reflecting that group of people who just feel like they just can't get the benefits because it's so busy and it's, it's, uh, it's an overwhelmed and difficult process. So that makes total sense. And, and it would add up just like the, when we look at the virus, right, that all of the cases are not nearly reported because we can't test everybody. And there's all these different things where the, you know, the numbers are not accurate because everyone's not included in the sample. So to your point of people being persistent and patient, is there any chance that the system ends up running out of money for people um, as they're applying? Is that possible? Or can we just, if, if however many people apply, as long as they get accepted, they get money? Right. So, um, yeah, as long as you're applying, you are entitled to that money. And the government is ensuring that it is, um, that there's a supply of money. Um, so the way that unemployment is kind of built, um, it's government funded. And so in part, um, it is also employer fu funded in part. Um, but you, you, if you are persistent, you are likely to get paid. Um, so for anybody who's out there who's discouraged because the process just seems so overwhelming right now, please apply. You will get paid. The benefits are there for you. You've been paying taxes. You're entitled to it. And um, this help, again, is really needed for people not only to pay their mortgages, their rents, their car payments, but it's also important to help stimulate business development because remember, we've got a bunch of businesses that were closed that are now reopening and entering into the economy again. And we need to, we need to put money towards those businesses so that they can stay in business. So I, I would say one last question in regards to this super critical content and uh, this portion of the program. If someone is just so daunted and overwhelmed by what it takes to go through the process, because there's some people that they just don't do well in that. Are there services that people can go to or is there a way that they can find assistance for people to to help them walk through this? Does unemployment offer that? Is there counseling or guidance service? What would people do in that in that regard? So I unemployment doesn't necessarily have those types of resources for people to help them with the application process. Um, I know that once you've applied, you get assigned, um, you're in the system and you can, you have access to the system, you can call into the system, you have your number. Um, and so you can start to kind of um, be persistent in that way. Um, but mm -hmm. a lot of people, and we're finding, in, in fact, I've, I've been retained quite a bit over the last three weeks to just help people with um, getting the benefits in or their information and in, making sure that the calculation of wages is correct. Um, I've had a lot of people where their calculation of wages was incorrect. Um, unemployment, for whatever reason, calculated it incorrectly, and they're not getting as much as they as as much as they should be getting. And so we've been hired um, in a lot of cases to just help people navigate the system where they just feel discouraged by it and they just need some additional help. Okay, and so just in case someone has to drop off the, the show early, if they need that, how would they best reach out to you um, or, or to our firm in order to get some answers for that? Yeah, so all they have to do is call our firm and um, ask to speak to Susan. 
Uh, she is fantastic. Susan Love, my paralegal, she schedules my day every day and you will <laughs> <have> my calendar. <laughs> awesome. And, and for those of you looking for that, it's 303-733-6353 would be the number. So Colleen, thanks for that part. Now let's move on to the second topic that you were talking about, which is this Family First Act. And after having read up on this a little bit and understanding the latest as it would could apply to some of our team here at the law firm, um, it was interesting because there it breaks it down, right? If you have symptoms versus if you're taking care of someone with symptoms and how much of your pay you get over this many weeks and that many weeks, can you kind of just outline that quickly for us? Yeah, so the, the, the purpose of the law, it was a piggyback. Um, and it was it was an add-on to the FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. And so I, my guess is, is that to enact a law like this, you needed to do it quickly, obviously, because we have a global pandemic going on. So to do so, they used an existing law and then added to that law in order to create um, the Family First um, law. Okay, and so the family first law is the design of it is to give relief to employees so that they can continue to get paid um, if they have to take care of themselves because they believe that they have COVID-19 or have been exposed to COVID-19 and need to be quarantined. Um, and it, the law talks about um, how many employees an employer has um, and that's kind of where the starting point is. And then it trickles down from there in terms of what the benefits are and how and how it kind of works. Um, but it was meant to be a leave, like the like the Family Medical Leave Act, um, mm -hmm. but a paid leave, so that people, um, so that employees had the resources to take the leave and and you know self isolate if they needed to. Um, and who pays that? That's not, like if if someone were to use that. Is that a governmental payback or does that come from a, a pool that the businesses have saved? And if they use that, are the businesses required to pay them at the same time or it's kind of a one or the other thing? Yeah, so the business is required to pay for the leave. And um, there has been promises of tax credits for payments. However, we have not seen that piece to fruition yet. Um, the act, was enacted and is only effective through December of this year. Now, whether or not it will be extended, um, it just—I I think it's just going to depend on how sick people are and if people are recovering and how the economy is recovering. And I'm sure that there's lots of factors in that um, yes. in terms of whether they'll extend it. But for right now, it's an employer's obligation to pay that to pay that leave. And I will say that that is one difference between um, the Family First and the FMLA is the FMLA um, employees can take the leave of absence and keep their job, but it is an unpaid leave. So meaning that if you had to care for yourself, a loved one, you had a baby, you adopted a baby, there were certain criteria you have to meet for the FMLA. Um, it's unpaid. If you had accrued vacation time or PTO, you could take it during that leave. The employer could use that to pay you. But if you did not have that PTO or vacation, it was unpaid you just had the assurance that you would have your job when you came back to work. So uh, I understand. Yeah. Big law, difference, right? So this piggyback thing was really, it, it puts the onus on the company to make sure that they continue to pay the employee. And ideally then it, does that meant, is that meant to come in with the PPP act in order to, you know, that, that uh, payroll protection plan in order to cover some of those costs? Cause I understand that is needed to be, 
that money or 75% of it or something is needed to be used up within eight weeks or all these yeah. other kind of little variables. Yeah. So, you know, I, um, I think it's a really challenging time for business owners right now, quite frankly, because mm -hmm. you have employees, um, who are saying that they were either exposed or may have it right. Um, you certainly want them to not be around other coworkers to get them sick. You want to right. trust are being honest and fair, right? Um, but then there are some exceptions to that where maybe someone isn't necessarily being honest or fair. Um, mm. Hope not, but it could be. Then we have situations where people think that they were exposed, they go get a test and it tests negative. Then what? You bring them back, right? And so there, this is, this is very difficult times, I think, um, in terms of trying to decipher what's the best practice and how do you keep your employees safe and continue on with your business and continue to pay for people who are on leave, especially in, in the economy that we have right now. That is incredibly complex. And, and so entrepreneurs that are listening to this, thank you so much for wading through these waters and we want to be a resource for you the whole way. And that does bring to mind one thing. If I remember right from the little research I've done on this, there is possibly an exemption to this if you're under 50 employees or something is that right, right? yeah how does that so, work yeah so it, 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 it it's a little it's a little bit of a challenge because remember the family medical leave act you have to have 50 or more employees to be um, covered to in order to have an obligation to offer that to your employees under the mm -hmm. family first law um, employers small employers are now obligated for the first time to kind of embrace the definitions of the FMLA, a law that they've never had to work with before, right? Because they didn't have enough employees. They, they didn't qualify. Um, so now not only are they having to understand the FMLA and the definitions in the FMLA, but then they are also under an obligation to give paid leave to their employees. Now, the, the definition for the 50 or fewer, it, if it is a hardship to your business, you can apply for an exemption um, if the employee is desiring the leave, and this is the critical piece, desiring the leave to take care of a child because you don't have um, daycare or you don't have childcare, or to take care of your child who's sick. Um, what, is very, um, what is very important to note about that 50 or fewer is that if the employee themselves is sick, like let's say, for example, I'm sick and we have 50 or fewer employees and I say to my employer, I'm sick, I have COVID-19, I need to be home. Um, that exemption doesn't apply. And I could, you know, I could legitimately be asking for pay um, from my employer to be off on leave under the Family First law. Wow, so employ employees need to remember that if they get sick, they for sure are covered and if they need to take care of someone that they may or may not be covered depending on these different sizes of companies and if it could cause hardship to the business our employers need to understand a little bit about fmla especially if they're 50, 49 or under and especially if they have someone who is definitely sick so i think there's something for both sides to learn who, who might be listening to this if someone is going to get um, they're feeling sick and they get a negative test. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, they have the symptoms, so they go home and they are not using PTO. Let's say they're out of PTO, you know, we're in the middle of the year now or going towards the middle of the year here in um, early to mid-May. 
what do they do if it comes back with it's a non-COVID diagnosis? They test negative. Then what? Is there is it a debate? Does it go for arbitration or, or what happens? This is this is really tricky stuff because you have the interest of the employee to get the test and you're hoping that the testing is accurate, right? That the test that they took is accurate or accurately reflecting whether or not they're healthy or not. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, whether or not they could have come into contact with someone else even after the test, right? So there's that whole issue of the testing because the testing wow. is really good for, um, it, it's only good in terms of what contact have you had up until the date of the test? And what if you come into contact with someone after you've taken your test, who you know who has COVID-19, you could have been re-exposed and so there's some stickiness there, okay, right? Wow, yeah, yes. And, and, and at the rate that this, um, this particular disease spreads, it, it spreads very quickly. It, it lives on services for a very long time. You could take a, a test as an employee, test negative, and then maybe perhaps develop, continue to have symptoms, and then need to get retested. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's also, um, there's also then the need of the employer to keep the employees safe, right? And so you, you want to encourage your employees to go get tested. Um, you want to know if somebody has tested positive. That's something that you want to know. And you want to know if they're fit to come back to work, right? And, and on the employer side of all this, remember that the symptoms for this particular disease can range anywhere from I am non-symptomatic, you don't even know I have COVID-19, to I have a dry cough, to I need to be hospitalized because I am so severely, um, I'm unable to breathe that I now need, I need hospitalization, or I'm so dehydrated or whatever, I need hospitalization. So, you know, the symptoms are very broad on this particular disease. So I think that wow, that yeah. adds an extra complication on the employer side. Um, because, you know, they do want to keep their other employees safe and healthy, especially in cases where people are working with small children, um, mm -hmm. daycares that are still open for essential employees that are going to work. That's really critical for those business owners. Um, so anyone who's dealing with kids, anyone who's in a patient care scenario or taking care of other people who might be sick, like, they, um, like even like the elderly, somebody who could be compromise just due to who they are um so there's lots of considerations here it's, it's wow that that is so true so i, I want to have one more question to this section and it might go in a little different direction but let's just check it out if you were maybe there's no perfect advice here but if a if a company is either not providing insurance or the insurance that they're providing is partial coverage is the is the employee responsible for paying for that test on their own or is the company responsible for paying for the test or is it is it not really decided at this point so if an employee has insurance and it's covered by insurance he or she can obviously go get tested right um, for sure in the case that an employer and where an employer does not offer health insurance there is no current obligation for the employer to go pay for the test Although I would say as a best practice, it might be encouraged amongst employers to do so, to, to offer that to their employees, especially if they know that their employees can't afford the testing. 
um, mm -hmm. cash pay of the testing because again, you wanna make sure that you're understanding who really is sick and who is not sick and how are you gonna keep people who are not sick safe at work. Right, right, and, and not to go down too far the rabbit hole of the medicine on this, but besides the test for the disease, there are tests for the antibodies to the disease or the antigen to the disease, which means you've already had it, right? Just depending on how long. So that's another thing for people listening, employee or employer, there are places out there right now doing IgM and IgG antibody tests and antigen tests to see if you've had it. Because if you've had it and you're immune to it, then you're, you're good to go. So, that, you know, we don't really need to talk about that, but I did want to make that point for the folks that were out there listening. Well, I, and I do, it just very quickly, I think that that's an important topic for our future because now as we're returning people back to work, um, they've, even, they've even said like to get it back on an airplane for some airlines that they're gonna take your temperature or they're gonna wanna know if you've had it or not. Um, I think that that's creating kind of a, an interesting legal question for our future. Um, are employers going to be permitted to only um, allow people who have either the antibodies or are healthy back to work or not? Wow. Or how does that work? And how are you not discriminating against people who may or may not have had COVID-19, may or may not test for the antibodies? It, it, kind, it can become a slippery slope. Um, and I know that there's this need to keep everybody safe and healthy, but we don't want to create, we don't want to create a, another um, form of discrimination, of course. Um, by yes, I agree, because we don't do that for yeah. any other disease, right? We're not doing that for SARS. We're not doing it for Ebola. We're not doing it for the flu. We're not doing it for anything else. So to now isolate and single out this thing is, is pretty interesting. And like you say, I'm thankful to have really smart people like you that are in the front lines of this that can battle for the rights of people, both employer, employee, also both sick and well, right? Because the right. people that are well could suffer even if they're not if they've never if they don't have antibodies or antigens and they've never tested positive but they're fine does that mean they can't go anywhere so the fact that you guys are out there really looking at these and and willing to go to battle to make sure that it's fair for everybody man that that is a good thing for all of us yeah and i i do see that as upcoming litigation in our future in terms of that that kind of getting flushed out and how we're going to do that in a non-discriminatory way wow I mean, well, we'll keep everyone posted. American, I mean, just so you, you know, you, there is the Americans with Disabilities Act that still exists, um, which says <laughs> yes. you can't discriminate based on disability or perceived disability. And so I understand that we're all in crisis mode right now, but that law does exist. And it, it'll just be interested, interesting to see how that all plays out in the future, whether, yes. um, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, as we have this last section. I'm excited about this because it's been one that I've had a lot of questions about and whether I've received them or just thought of them, this business interruption insurance. A lot of, of offices, whether they be small, especially small business owners may not even know whether they have business interruption insurance. And from my limited understanding, business interruption insurance, interruption insurance is there that uh, to protect us in case an act of God or something makes it so that the, you have an earthquake and your business can't do what it's supposed to do, that you're supposed to have some insurance coverage. So that's what it's about. So a pandemic relating to that as being an act of God versus an order where you could run your business, but the governor says, uh, no, 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 you cannot open your business. There, there's some, some drawing pieces there back and forth, right? 
Yeah, so this is, um, this is definitely a developing area of the law. Um, we are starting to already see uh, lawsuits for business interruption claims. Um, most businesses, I, I would encourage, if you're a business owner out there, I would encourage you to take a look at your policy and figure out what insurance you, you do in fact have. Because if you have this type of insurance, it could be critical to you. Um, we are seeing arguments from insurance carriers, though, denying coverage. And that's where the, the litigation is. Um, that's why this is a hot spot for litigation right now, because businesses are saying, um, to your point, Jim, look, our governor shut, shut the state down. Um, and now I have um, a physical loss or damage under my policy. Please help me. Please insure me. And the insurance companies are saying no or the insurance companies are alternatively saying that a, a virus can't constitute a direct physical loss or damage, and therefore you are excluded. And so um, there are some policies that do have some provisions about viruses and bacterial exclusions, but for the, for the most part, most of these policies do not. And it's really critical for business owners to take a look at the policy and, and give it to somebody who can read it and really interpret it for them. I, I'd say put some legal eyes on it if your insurance company is refusing to cover your loss um, because I think that, I mean, it's really critical in terms of keeping yourself in business and you've been paying for the policy. <laughs> so you right. all this time for this moment, right? Um, why, why now can't you use it if you've been paying for it? And so I think, um, I think that that's, I think it's definitely worth pursuing. I think it's definitely getting a legal set of eyes on it to see if you can be helped in any way. Um, I, I think that's really critical, especially where we are right now. Every little bit helps. Absolutely. And do you see a percentage of business insurance that doesn't have that rider or that clause on it? Or is that usually something that if someone has business insurance, it's going to have some sort of a business interruption clause so that folks that the entrepreneurs out there or the people that work for a small business can say, hey, go look at this policy. How will they know if they have it? Yeah, so you're going to have to look at the policy to know. It's, it, you're going to have to look at the language of it to know. Um, and if you have a question about what you've actually purchased and what your policy says, bring it to a lawyer. Have us look at it. Have us tell you what it says and what what is excluded and what isn't and what are your good arguments and what are your are bad arguments for you. Um, to pursue a claim because I, I, I really do think it, unfortunately with um, insurance contracts, they're contracts, right? And they are written um, in favor of the insurance company, of course, and they, um, and they can be very, very technical. And so I would hate for somebody to, to just glance over it or not have the experience in reading these types of things and miss it and have a claim and not be able to pursue it or fight for it if they've been denied. And, so I, and I, I think, is this right, Colleen? I, I am so sorry to interrupt you. Is this right? I was reading something about this. You got the insurance carrier on one side saying, oh, well, if we pay for all these things that we didn't write in, then we're going to be broke. Then there'll be no insurance. And then on the other side, we've, we've got this, this deal saying, okay, what qualifies for, um, for this business, business interruption insurance? How long should it last? What are the provisions for it? it when someone's looking at this, is it fair to say that um, unless they wrote an exclusion for a virus, that they may very well have a claim or, or a pandemic, 
something along that line that they very well may have a claim. Yeah, so again, it's very language intense um, and each contract could be different. So meaning that your business could have a different policy than the business across the street, right? And so mm -hmm. it's very contract specific, but it is worth it to take a look to see um, how it reads. And most of them, you know, to this point, do not have a virus exception in them. Um, I, that was a, kind of a newer development that, that emerged over time. A lot of these contracts don't have that component to them. Um, and so that's why I would, I, would, um, I would encourage people to come forward. Now, in terms of the debate, there was um, some talk that the federal government was going to force insurance companies to pay on these claims 100%. Um, the insurance companies obviously did not like that because <laughs> remember, insurance companies, they, they um, have lots of statisticians and mathematicians and they're calculating every time they sell a policy or price a policy um, in a particular geographic location. They're looking at how many claims will there be how many people will get paid on those claims? What is the average amount of payment on those claims? Okay, so insurance companies are built on um, those statistics and what the insurance companies are arguing, well, we have those statistics and that's how we set our prices and that's how we knew we could make money. So you can't force us to pay on all claims. Um, the flip of that is, is that where we are right now, people really need the assistance. They really need the help. They were paying for these policies and they should just really get what they paid for. I mean, so. Right. That, are you, that, are you seeing any of these come through? Have any insurance, have any just, um, business interruption insurances paid or have any of these cases settled in court yet? I know it's a long process. So I, I just don't know if the, the people listening could get a sense of where we are, or is it just going to be a hurry up and wait game on this? Um, so they're, they're just starting to emerge. Um, we have some of our newer cases kind of popping up being filed just recently within the last couple of weeks. In some instances, it's just a matter of an attorney writing a letter to the insurance company saying, hey, look, this is covered. You need to pay. And in some instances, they get paid. The, the business gets paid. In other instances, the insurance company is, um, you know, saying no that's not okay. And then lawsuits are needed. And so you're going to, I think you're going to see a variety of it. I also think it's going to depend on the insurance carrier and it's too new to, or too new in terms of litigation and understanding these claims to see the trends and what insurers are denying them and what insurers are paying them. Um, we're too new in this to see, but I think we will start to see trends in terms of what companies are, are typically paying on these claims and what what companies are fighting these and are just denying across the board, hoping that people don't hire attorneys and they don't fight for the money and the insurance company gets to keep it. Wow. And does this, does, uh, I don't know if you even have the answer to this one. If someone has business interruption insurance, if their business is closed for one week, two weeks, three weeks, six months, do these things typically have capped benefits on them of blank dollars or as a percentage of revenue over time? And what if your business closes because of this and it can't go back into operation? Are you still entitled to business interruption insurance if you don't have a business any longer? Right. And so it really depends on what the policy says and what you've purchased, right? Yes. So yep. each policy is going to, you'd have to look at each policy to know how much and how long 
you would be entitled to benefits. It's just like any other policy or insurance policy. So for example, if I was in a car crash today, I, which is funny because I haven't driven in forever, but if I was in a car crash, <laughs> I own auto insurance and my auto insurance I purchased for this X dollar amount. And so that is my policy and that's my insurance. And so now I know moving forward, that's the dollar amount, the total and the, I guess, potential claim I could make. Um, it's the same, it's the same idea with business interruption insurance. So interesting question follow up to that right now. And I, I was wondering that because again, we do a lot of auto work here at our firm. And so we definitely are, have this conversation every day with your coverage is what you purchased. And I didn't know if it was the same where people would buy business coverage for more business interruption insurance or not. And so it, it gets me thinking if someone has not put in a claim yet for business insurance, but we're in a pandemic, can they right now go buy an increased level of business interruption insurance or add that rider to a policy if they're still opening and operating under the auspice that if it happens during COVID-19 pandemic, then they'll be able to use it? Or now are the carriers putting a restriction on the state? Oh, as of March, whatever, 2020, no business interruption insurance can be purchased till further notice. So yeah, so that's an interesting question. I, I'm, I'm reasonably certain you could probably purchase it if you wanted it. But there are probably exclusions that says that you can't, you know, you can't cash in on COVID-19 if you're buying it right now. Um, right. Or that you have to wait a certain period of time before you can, before you can use the benefit. I, I got to believe that the insurance companies are not um, allowing people to purchase policies and then make claims immediately because of COVID-19. Um, I, I suspect that they're smarter than that and that they yeah. are, they're covering themselves with that language. Well, imagine this, because um, I agree with you on that point. Like we always tell people after the accident, it's too late. But if you buy a policy, most auto policies the day before the accident, unless there's some weird exclusion, you're going to have the full coverage of that policy. So what I was thinking is none of us knows how long this is going to go. So for example, on a, on a business that, that has lag measure um, income or revenue, like they, the work they do today doesn't get paid today, it gets, it's, gets paid into the future all of a sudden everything right now is good, right? But if you bought that insurance now and then you came out later if, if you bought it, that, those are really the, the interesting uh, potential scenarios that fascinate me with respect to this particular topic. Yeah, so I guess I would just tell people if you're thinking of purchasing additional insurance or insurance for business interruption, um, you wanna be very clear about what you are buying. Yes, absolutely. you want to keep a copy of the policy, okay? We're not going to rely on somebody who's selling you the insurance to tell you what you're getting. You want to see a copy of your policy or the, what the policy language is going to look like so that you have a real understanding in terms of what you can and can't do under that policy. That's, I think that's perfect. Really important. I, the other thing I think that we smart. haven't seen yet, um, but I do foresee is that in addition to the business interruption claim, so you can make a claim against the insurance carrier for failure to pay but you can also make claims against the insurance agent who sold you the policy. And so- Oh, wow. Yet seen those claims, but they do, they do exist. Um, and- Can you um, give a little, more, a little more detail on that? When would that apply versus not apply? It, it, would it be if the claim didn't process, then you, they're the backup or they're the fallback for the so, claim not processing? Yeah, so the person who um, sold you the insurance is promising that you're gonna be getting I mean, in layman's terms, is, is, is promising you a policy that will do X, Y, and Z, right? And then they're not, 
the policy isn't doing that. And so there's some arguments that they have erred in the way that they have sold the policy or sold the insurance and that that has violated the law as well. And so we may see claims against insurance agents for selling, um, for selling insurance um, in conjunction with the business interruption claims. The reason why I say that is because insurance agents are also insured, <laughs> of course. And so I suspect that we will start to see those types of claims as well as business interruption claims. Um, wow. You could, if let's say, for example, I have an issue with my auto insurance or my life insurance, and I have a particular individual who sold me that insurance, I would potentially have a claim against them under those circumstances. So it's not mm -hmm. uncommon to have um, claims against the person who sold the insurance as well, in addition to the carrier for not paying. Wow. Well, Colleen, you have been a wealth of information as always. Every time we've done a podcast, you are absolutely on it and incredible. And I can't thank you enough for making time in all of this with your busy schedule and all the different calls that are coming in. Again, for people listening, if you have questions on this, 303-733-6353. And you can talk with Susan. You can ask for Susan. She can get a time set up. Any of our front desk can get time set up. And Colleen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being oh, on the show today. One other thing I just wanted to add. Um, so at Ramos Law, we also have a corporate law division and a lot of people don't know this about us that we actually have a corporate attorney, um, David Silverman. And so he, um, he is an excellent resource as well for businesses um, to help them out. Um, I, I typically trend more on the employee, the employer employee relationship side. He is more on the, the structural corporate side. However, um, David and I have talked about um, for the next three Fridays uh, at three o'clock, we're going to have live webinars. If businesses who are just kind of coming back, who need some quick advice, we'll be around and we can answer questions if people haven't, because we really feel strongly about, again, giving back to the community, helping people out and getting people back to work and businesses back into business um, so that they can start off in a very, in a very good way, in a positive way um, after being you know, potentially closed for all this time. So we're going to, that is so that. helpful. You'll see, that. You'll see that out in our social media as well, but yeah, awesome. so corporate attorney and, a, and an employment attorney together, who knows what that's going to look like. Uh, lots of lawyers, <laughs> um, probably lots of lawyer jokes, but I think it might be a good resource for some of our um, listeners or maybe people who have businesses or even employees who just want to call in and have a question. Um, we'll be there. So Perfect. Colleen, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay. Bye.